private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Cola. Let's, uh, let's just bow our heads in prayer as I begin this talk. Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we open your word, we get to see ourselves. And in that challenge of seeing ourselves reflected back to us in this written word, we understand ourselves in the context of who you are. What is it that you want for us and from us? How is it that we can please your heart? And what are the things that draw us Christward? in a way that allows us to become more and more like Jesus. Father, these are the huge questions that continue to be front and center in our lives as we become more and more mature as Christians. So, Father, we open ourselves to your word this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> there's a word that is very, very small, but it says a lot. It asks a question and makes a statement all at the same time. And the word is if. If. It's not very big, is it? And yet we can get to the end of our lives and we can say, if only. If I did, if I hadn't done, if I'd said, if I'd work less or work more, if I'd, if I'd, if I'd. And so it's one of those words that you want to be able to eliminate from your life. Don't you? You don't want to have your life summarized by the word if when you get to the end of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say, isn't it? I know in the time that I had with Pastor Jim before he passed away, Jim would say, I've had a fantastic life. I've had a fantastic life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Hey, isn't that, isn't that true? And if we, if we aim for that, if we put Christ first, we run out of ifs. At the end of our lives, we don't have to look back with regret. You know, so we've got songs written about the word if, that use the word if. We've had, had uh, uh, statements made that talk about the big if of life. And this uh, definition from the dictionary says that the definition of if is a particular thing can or will happen only after something else happens. So if you work harder at school, you get an opportunity for more education. If you work at this education, you have the chance of getting a career path that is perfectly suited to you. You've trained for it. If you work hard at your relationships, you can have folks around you who care for you and you care for them. If, if, if. And uh, you know what it's like when we're raising children, those of you who have been privileged enough to raise kids? You know, it's like, if you tidy your bedroom, if you tidy your bedroom, I'll be happy, says mum. If you do the lawns, dad says, I'll, um, you'll grow to be a fantastic, a fantastic young man and I'll be very, very proud of you, if, if, if. And so we put this word if on everybody, don't we? Because we know that actions have consequences and opportunities produce results. Um, as I was thinking about it this week, I thought there's some songs out there with the word if. John Rawls comes to mind. If I only had time. If I only had... Anyway. But there's another song that caught my attention and I thought this is probably more suited, suitable for me. 
And it comes from The Wizard of Oz. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. Oh, I could tell you why the ocean's near the shore. I could think of things I never thought before. And then I'd sit and think some more. I would not be just a nothing, my head all full of stuffing, my heart all full of pain. I would dance and be merry, life would be a ding a dairy if I only had a brain. Wonderful. If I only had a brain. You know what? That has haunted me all week. I've just been walking along, and then all of a sudden I'll just start singing, if I only had a brain. And uh, I hope it doesn't do that to you, but it's stuck with me all week, and I'm pretty sure it's going to stick with me for the rest of the week. Uh, as I talk this morning, I'll reflect upon some of the little things that happened uh, in the walk that I just did across Spain. And uh, one of the things that uh, would happen most mornings is talking about having a brain, was that I'd get out of bed early with Peter, who I was traveling with, and uh, one of the native birds in Spain is the cuckoo. And uh, so I'd start my walk as dawn was breaking, and the cuckoo's there in the distance going, cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> what am I doing here, you know, this time of the day, walking across a country in the middle of nowhere with the goal of just getting to the other end? if I only had a brain. So the word if is, um, is a big word, isn't it? It's a big word, and it surrounds us all the time about the choices that we make. If, if, if. And so when we look at this series from Philippians, we see the big if coming out of the story because um, what Paul is doing is he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's asking the question if. If you have a relationship with God through Christ, if you have this uh, relationship that is ongoing and it's life-giving and it's transformative, then what goes up with your relationship with God should also affect other people. You should be better for knowing Jesus. You should be better in the ongoing work of sanctification. That's a big word, bigger than wheelbarrow, isn't it? Sanctification means the ongoing process of becoming more like Christ. And so we therefore have this challenge in front of us as to allowing our relationship with God to impact our relationship with other people. And it's a measure that Christ will actually use to us. And I think that's okay. Do you think God is allowed to measure us? Is he allowed to ask something from us as a result of the sacrifice of his son? I think he is. And yet it's so difficult for us, isn't it, to put ourselves in that place of transformation. I think the older you get, the more justified you become with your actions because you've always been this way. And to change something dramatically is a confession that what you used to do, you shouldn't have been doing. So therefore, you don't do what you should do because what you've always done is what you're known for, and therefore, that's just who you are. Does it make sense? 
So if you've got a short temper, you'll say, why should I change that? It's got me through this. People have always jumped to my opinion. But to say I need to work on my patience and maybe my long-suffering is a confession that you haven't always had it right. So the ongoing nurture of your soul, nurture of your personality, is something that you need to put towards God because he is going to transform you if, and here's the word if, you allow it to happen. So let's have a look at how Paul talks to us about this in the context of community and in the context of us knowing Jesus as Lord. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So we're going to just bite our way through this. It's a, it's a massive statement to make, isn't it? It's a huge comment to talk about our relationship with Christ actually having an impact upon others because that's the true measure of whether our relationship with Christ is of any value to you and those around you. So Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, of any common sharing in the spirit, of any tenderness and compassion from being united with Christ, then something is going to shift, something is going to change. And if we look at it like this, I see this, these, uh, these two lines here representing a hose. If you like, all the good stuff that Christ has for us can transfer into our lives unencumbered, unencumbered in a way that allows us to tap into the fullness of what God has for us. The only limitation on what it is that Christ can do in our lives comes back to us. And this is where we limit it. We limit it in the ways that I just described. We limit it because when we are asked to change, when God's Spirit is saying, you need to repent, you need to change, you've got the bad attitude, you need to change that attitude, and we say no, subtly, even subconsciously. We say no. We're saying that... Uh, I'm okay, God loves me as I am, and that work of his spirit prompting me to change is something that I can ignore. And the biggest problem with ignoring the promptings of the spirit is that we harden our hearts, we harden our hearts, and we end up staying the same person as we've always been. If you are the same person that you were 10 years ago or five years ago, you've got to ask some serious questions. Is God really transforming me? Or am I so perfect he doesn't need to do any work in my life? Is that right? Is he transforming me? That's a really, really serious question. Go home, husbands, and ask your wives, <laughs> am I a better person than I was five years ago, honey? And if there is a long pause, you don't need the answer. <laughs> okay, you've got your answer. Okay? Now, I only say that because I'm too scared to ask my wife that myself. But here's the challenge for us. If you have, if you have any, sorry, if you have anything going on in your life with Christ, it should have an impact on the way that you conduct your relationships. And, 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 and Paul says, then you have to make 
my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of one mind. So Paul is saying here as a father to this church in Philippi, it's like a father, isn't it? Make my joy complete. In other words, make me happy. Make me happy. Paul's saying, make me happy by getting on with each other. That's like a, a father talking to his sons. Well, at least it was my father talking to me and my brother. Make me happy. Stop fighting. Stop chasing each other down the house and trying to pummel each other. That was sort of 12 and 13 years old. It's pretty standard. I was raised in Tapuna. We're pretty tough. So we have this opportunity to change. And Paul is saying, make my joy complete. But there's a reference here when he says, make my joy complete, that actually talks about being, making that joy complete for the Father. This is actually something that warms the heart of God when we get on together, when we get on well together, as we work hard on our relationships. And if we're going to ask this question, it's saying, if Christ is measuring our quality of relationships as a sign of our true worship, of true worship, he's saying, if you have a relationship with me, if you have any strength, any comfort, any fellowship from having a relationship with me, then we should be able to see that in how we get on with one another. Shouldn't we? So let's ask a more detailed question. In this building complex that we have here, we have an auditorium where we will see it as a sanctuary and we worship the Lord with our music and, and listen to the word. And then we go into the cafe and we have fellowship with one another. You know? And so what we're hoping is that what goes on here will make a difference out there. Okay? And we know that churches are all shaped very differently to what they used to be. I mentioned this before, but you go through the, through the country and you see these little wee churches and a little foyer just for your umbrella or your raincoat, You're just enough in the entranceway there. Because the expectation was that what happened in there was not necessarily going to impact what happens outside. So, you know, it was like, go and do your business with God and you come out and it's like... <sighs> See, the boys did pretty well. I said, oh, yeah, mate, uh, what's, uh, what's happening in the TAB here? You know, Okay, pretty simple stuff. No one ever asked you, how's your relationship with God going? It's like, mind your own business. Mind your own business. So what happens here in this, this church, and this is true to a lot of churches around, I think it goes like this. Our relationship with God can be warmed here it can be strengthened here in this auditorium. And we can lift our voices in, in worship through song. But what's really valued and is the greater measure of our worship, it's what's going on in the cafe afterwards, the level of our relationships, the quality of our fellowship. These are the things that really count. Because at the end of the day, we don't do this Christian thing alone. We're called to be a body. And so to say, look, it's me and Jesus and that's all that counts is actually wrong, absolutely wrong. I think that the worship that we have in the life of our church is fantastic. And if you have good worship, we're talking about an uninterrupted flow where your heart and your mind can be drawn towards Christ and you remind yourself and you remind God of whose child you are. Yeah? And that's what good worship is all about. 
But the worship that God values is the way that we interact with one another. To prefer one another, to honor one another, to value one another, to look to another person's interests. These things are a lot harder, aren't they, than worshiping God here, sort of standing, looking towards the front, singing a song. It's a lot harder to get on with somebody who you might have some difficulties with or some challenges with, and you need to reconcile those. Those are really big challenges. So, so God is calling us forth in this way of our relationships to ensure that we don't forget that our relationships are the fundamental and foundational thing of what church life is and the body of Christ and all that it means to be church. The Apostle Paul put it a different way when he talked to the Corinthians, but essentially the same spirit. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. In other words, we can sacrifice our life for this relationship with God so that we may even boast about our level of sacrifice. But if we don't do any of that through love, and love is always preferring others, isn't it? Love is always about humility. If we're not doing that in equal measure or even greater measure, then it's all a pointless exercise. There's literally nothing going on. The door is shut, the trap door is closed, the heart is locked, and people's lives aren't being transformed. So Paul rightfully asks the question, if you have any comfort from being in relationship with God, where is that actually outworking itself? How is that outworking itself? And then we're allowed to ask the question, because Paul is asking this, can we measure this? Are we allowed to call it out of other people? Are we allowed to look at others and say, hey man, you know the attitude that you had? I heard it once, you were talking about things that were really disparaging against other races, you know, a bit of prejudice going on. I need to call that out of you. And we're like, oh, that's getting a little bit sensitive, isn't it? That's getting a little bit close to the bone. Yeah? But why do I do this? Because Christ is in you and he's being formed in you. And I'm allowed as your brother or your sister to call this out of you because there's something there that God is saying to me and saying to us that I am responsible for. So I encourage you to drink coffee. Okay, I encourage you to wait till the final prayer finishes at the end of the church service before you go to the line. But I encourage you to drink coffee because there you have fellowship with one another. There you have fellowship with one another. You see, motives are everything. Motives are everything. And the very nature of our heart is what God is wanting to reveal to us. And so the work of Christ in your life is an ongoing revelation of what God already knows you are about. Does it make sense? You see, he knows everything you are. So when we have a revelation that we've got an attitude problem, there's only one person in the room who's surprised. God is not surprised. He already knows that. He's just letting you know that he knows it, and he's hoping that you'll take responsibility for it. Is that fair to say? Of course it is. 
And on that basis, the sanctification process, it's called repentance, happens and we become more and more like Christ. And guess who wins as a result of that? Our ego, because we feel we're closer to Jesus? No. The person sitting next to you, they're the ones who win. Because you're becoming more and more like Christ. Jeremiah put it this way, he said, when the Lord spoke to him, he said, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Wow. So here we're being told that God examines the heart. Don't worry about the words. He knows what's going on. When the words say one thing and you're thinking another, he's already got that sorted. And you're going, oh, stink, really? Yep. You're toast, mate. God smokes you. He knows what's going on before you even say it. So that's why he wants you to work on the inside. Even Jesus talked about this, said if you look at somebody with murder in your eyes or anger, that's like murder. If you look at somebody with lust, that is adultery. And so these are the things that we have to take seriously is that we're not trying to hide from God because he wants the best for us. He wants us to be set free. We sing songs like our shackles are undone, our chains are gone. He's talking about those shackles and chains that are wrapped around our heart. And that's why he says, make sure you work on the little stuff because the little stuff's going to have an impact on the big stuff, which are your relationships. And your relationships are the stuff of life. Your quality of your life is measured by the quality of your relationships. And when you sit in your rocking chair at the end of the day, if you've got a whole lot of big ifs, like, oh, if I only had, if I'd only sorted that out, but only worked on that. Those are the big regrets that you carry with you, and those are the regrets you carry with you to heaven. Yeah. So, so what is worship? Worship is being able to be in a place where we hear from God, and that allows us to be changed. And it's about our motives. It's about everything that's going on in our life. Um, last century, actually two centuries ago now, there was a, a great writer in the English world called Sir Walter Scott. He was known as the greatest writer of his period. His, uh, his prose, his literature, his poetry was received by, by everybody and they just said, this is these are words that come from heaven. This is just so eloquent in the way that he describes things. And then another young man appeared on the scene, a guy called Lord Byron. And people were overwhelmed by the quality of this guy's poetry. And he was only a young man. And people started to compare him to Walter Scott and saying, wow, gosh, you know, look at this. Walter Scott wrote a letter to the newspaper but he didn't sign his name. He said, truly, Lord Byron is the greatest writer of our period. Truly, there is no greater gift in literature than this man within living memory. I declare him to be the greatest writer in the whole of, the, of, of Britain. Now, he did this because he wanted to acknowledge that somebody else was doing really, really well. 
And it came to notice some time later that he was the one who actually wrote it. You see, he's preferring somebody else. He's acknowledging the goodness of God in somebody else's gift. And that's what we're called to do, is when we look at one another, we need to be preferring other, each other, looking at each other's interests. Winston Churchill was uh, addressed by a journalist one day. He said, Mr. Churchill, it must give you great pride to find that whenever you are going to address the public with a speech, there's a great crowd that turns up. And Winston Churchill said, yes, well, it does give me a great deal of satisfaction. But I remind myself that if I was to be hanged, there'd be twice the crowd. You've got to put it all in perspective. Theodore Roosevelt, the president of the United States, one evening at a retreat, took his guest out and they looked out at the stars and he reminded his guest that um, this planet was just one of billions of planets, but more than that, there are billions of stars greater and bigger than our sun, and that goes on forever and ever and ever into eternity, thus delivered by the hand of God. And they stood and they stared into space as he unraveled the mystery of this uh, enormity. And then he turned to his friend and said, now that we've right-sized ourselves, it's time to go to bed. <laughs> now that we've right-sized ourselves, it's time to go to bed. So what is worship? Worship is how we treat one another. Does God take pleasure out of our fine voice, telling him who he is as we worship? Or does God take greater pleasure out of the way that we work more intentionally at our relationships? Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because you love one another. So what's our greatest witness? Our greatest witness is how the church functions, how we get on. So let's have a look at this word from Philippians, in Philippians once again and look at it through those eyes, the big if and the so what. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any encouragement from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Those, that, last, um, that last sentence, man, it just wipes you off the floor, doesn't it, really? Because we're measuring ourselves and our own desires to put ourselves first. I was... Um, when recently when I was overseas, uh, my friend Peter and I, who I was walking with, uh, we had a few days up our sleeve once we finished the walk. It was just a contingency if we would got sick or there's bad weather or something. So we had four days and we decided to go through to Portugal, to Oporto, which is a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site, a beautiful place. And we caught the bus. And so the bus pulled up and we threw our backpacks in the side of the bus, as you do. And, uh, and then we had a introduction to Spanish culture in respect to getting on the bus. I'd said to Pete, and Pete had said to me, it'd be great if we get the front seats, eh? You get a great view. 
Well, there was 40 other Spaniards who decided the same. And there were some elderly folks amongst them, some elderly women, who decided that because of their age, they had a privileged right to the front seat, and they had canes. And they were like, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me, but I've got that seat, and I tell you what, I'm going to get it. You might think I'm a little frail old lady, but I tell you what, this cane has got a life of its own, and I'm not responsible for where it ends up. So made her way, their way, to the front of the bus, and everybody else had to fall in behind. So always be wary of the little old lady with the walking stick. But it was just a, a real point in case of human nature, you know? It's like, we're all here, and we're all just pretending to be gracious, mature adults milling around the bus. And as soon as it turned up, uh, we, we turn into Darwinian uh, sort of survivalists, where it's survival of the fittest. And uh, dare I say, Pete and I got the back seat of the bus, or near to it. And we're like, oh, we don't really care. We just walked 800 kilometers. We could walk to Porto. Who cares? But putting one another, putting another person's interests in front of yourself, I had a really um, a poignant, again, a poignant uh, illustration of this. Uh, Peter and I had finished this walk, and we got to Santiago on the day and about 11 o'clock, and there was a, a, what they call a pilgrim's mass in the main cathedral in Santiago. So it happens at midday. And so we hung around for this, and the cathedral was packed about 1,500 people on a Thursday in the middle of the day. And uh, we got in. We got in late, so we had to stand. There was no seats. Uh, but as you exit the uh, cathedral, it exits out onto a, a piazza, a big plaza, which then drops down with about 20 big stairs, which would be as wide as this building, the stairs, going down onto another platform. And right at the end was a band, a big band that was practicing for an event. It was Ascension Weekend. And so the Catholics have a weekend off in Spain and they celebrate Ascension. Well, we came out of the auditorium, out of the cathedral, I should say, and like hundreds of others, we just sat on these stairs and we listened to the band preparing for the evening. They were doing a lot of their songs, just getting warmed up. And maybe no one saw what I saw, but across the piazza in front of us, there was a, a little old lady... Uh, an Asian lady, actually, and she was just hobbling her way towards the side of the, the set of steps. And she was literally going like this. And as she got closer, I could see by her hands that she was riddled with arthritis. Her hands were all gnarled like this. And she, was, and she got to the steps, and then she started climbing the steps. And I thought, my goodness, she's going to try to climb these 20 or 25 marble steps. She could barely walk. And so, so I just I got up and I walked down the steps and, um, and I helped her just one step at a time because she wanted to go to the cathedral and there was nothing that was going to hold her back. And so we got to that place, of, I got that place and just helped her up and that was all cool. And then I sat down and, and uh, I'm not trying to be smug or anything like that, but I just felt the Lord say to me, you know, that was more important than 1,500 people making noises in the cathedral. And here we were, literally hundreds of people on these stairs, having just committed ourselves to worship, but now we're distracted and attracted to a band that was playing, so that's our self-interest. And by the grace of God, I just happened to see this little old lady, and I had the privilege of helping her up into the cathedral. And I think, for me, that captures everything that God wants to record in this 
these four verses that we're looking at today. It's, it's, it's a challenge to have a mindset that seeks to put the interests of others before your own. And I don't know if any of you caught it this week, but there was a little article in the Herald about a guy who helped an old man across the road uh, uh, out in South Auckland. This guy uh, uh, parked up his... He saw an, a man with a Zimmer frame there on the side of the road trying to get across. And apparently he thought, this guy's going to get killed. And so he pulls his holding over the side of the road, goes across the road, and um, helps this elderly man. He stops the truck, stops the second lane of traffic, and he helps this elderly man across the road. And uh, the fascinating thing is that the guy who did this was a, a member of a local gang. So you can't judge by the outside, eh, what's going on on the inside. And so we see these things happening around us, and we, we challenge ourselves in the same way that God challenges us. Is my worship about what happens here in the morning, or is it what happens beyond here? Because I think God's heart is warmed when we look to the interests of others, when we get beyond our vain conceit, and we help each other out. Does it make sense? Pretty simple stuff, isn't it? But it's something we all need reminding of. So why don't we stand and pray? And those of you who normally run to the coffee line while everybody's got their eyes closed, um, you could stay and pray. Perhaps come to the front, we could deliver you your uh, addiction to coffee. Uh, but only if you want to. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word, we do indeed see ourselves in the mirror of Scripture. And uh, none of us could escape from today's word because it's all-encompassing and we know very much what the human heart is all about, looking to our own interests. But God, allow your Spirit to continue to work in us that we might have a soft heart, a heart that is open to your Spirit's prompting, that we don't harden our heart, that we have the ability to change and to look to the needs of others and others' interests ahead of our own. Wow. That's an amazing thing to be called to, to be a servant, to be just like Jesus, putting others first. And so, Father, we open ourselves to the prompting of your spirit and where opportunities present themselves to do just that, to put others first. We just pray that you would remind us, prompt us, help us to see these opportunities that are given to us, that ultimately you would be glorified through our actions. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.